This morning, we're talking about the Chinese missionary movement. And I chose China for several different reasons that will become apparent. Ideally, in church history, it would be appropriate. Where, where I went to school, there was actually a class offered called Missions, and it dealt with the history of missions as well as how to go about missions. But, but ideally, I would have time and we would take time to deal with the church history of, of missions in a number of different places because it, it wasn't just in China. But China is a, an interesting example of how the church has spread through more recent times into foreign countries. Uh, um, and so that's the one that I've chosen. Uh, China is an interesting place. I don't know how many of y'all tried to dig there as children. <laughs> I think I've told you before I did. Um, I'd gotten, I think, almost halfway when I realized that I was going to be digging through hell. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. And so I just quit digging and put my shovel, shovel up, but I was like several feet into the ground. China is a, a country with 1.3 billion people. Okay, 1.3 billion people. That's what, almost, uh, almost one out of every four people on the planet are in China. Now, how many of those are Christians? The estimates vary. The estimates are anywhere from 20 to upwards of 100 million Christians. The most reasonable estimates I saw are around 70 to 80 million Christians, which is roughly the same number who are members of the Communist Party in China. It's a fascinating question, and, and the question I set before us today as our agenda is, how did the gospel reach China? Well, we're going to talk about that in terms of missions it reached the gospel reached china through the mission work of a number of men and women and that's what we're going to talk about so we have to start this out pastor fleming is going to spend several weeks on missions starting next week i told him that we were going to get a jump on it and kind of springboard it off for him here this week with our class but mission if you look it up in oxford's dictionary a mission is defined uh, the, the part that talks about a religious mission as a body sent to propagate a religious faith. In other words, a mission is, is, or a missionary is one who is sent to take the Christian faith. It comes from a Latin word. And those of you who like me to go into the language background, I threw it in here for you. Our toga man comes to tell us. The Latin word missio means ascending off. And all they did is add into it, and then you have a mission, right? You will remember missio not only because of that, but... It's also the root for the word missile or missive as in a letter. It's something sent. And so the Latin word for, for missio, for sent, uh, uh, is uh, uh, the word that has formed the root of a mission because a mission ultimately is the sending of the gospel. Now, my question to you is, who sent the gospel? If the gospel, if the sending of the gospel is the mission, who is the real missionary? Who really sent the gospel? Oh, you might say Jesus. After all, it was Jesus who told his apostles to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, right? So Jesus is the one who sent the gospel. Or you may say, wait a minute, I'm stepping back. If you go back to Genesis 18:18, 18, 18, which Paul quotes in Galatians 3:8. In Genesis 18, 18, through Abraham, quote, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
And Paul, in quoting that in Galatians, says that's blessed through Jesus. And so Paul was taking Jesus to all the nations. Because it's through Jesus that all of the nations shall be blessed. That's the mission. The mission is as old as the oldest scriptures we've got. Going back to Genesis. Now, that mission and how it went into China is a wonderful story because China has never been too receptive to outsiders. China has built up a great wall to keep out outsiders. 200 B.C., the walls started going up, and the walls have never really come down. I can remember when I was a young man... Do y'all remember what a big deal... Now, some of you were not born, okay? I'm talking to the older crowd, the Steve Taylors. Do y'all remember... Do y'all remember what a big deal it was when Nixon went to China in 68? I think it was 68. It's around then. Nixon goes to China, and it was a huge deal because China was so closed off to the world. Certainly the Western world. Now, if we look at Christianity in China, there have been at least four stages of the Christianization of China. Here they are. There were some Nestorian heretics who went over from Persia, modern-day Iran, in the 600s. And they kept a missionary or outpost there until the 1300s. Nestorian heretics, if you don't remember what they are, log on to the website, go back and read about the Nestorian heresy. It's also what brought about... Uh, some of the ideology, at least, of Muhammad and the, the, the prophet of Islam because he studied under the same Nestorian heretics who did not recognize the deity and divinity of Jesus in, in an orthodox way. Those Nestorians got kicked out, exiled from the Christian Byzantine Empire. And we discussed that in here. So they went into Arabia and they went into Persia and ultimately over to China where they laid some seeds down that God was later able to use, but it's not what we would call orthodox Christianity. The seeds were useful, however, when the first Roman Catholic went over there, a Franciscan monk in 1293. And in Peking, he was able to uh, uh, eventually have a church of almost 6,000 people. For some reason that history has lost, with his death, that church and persecution died out, basically. But there were more Catholic efforts, especially through some Jesuits that went out there in the 1500s to try and convert. Ultimately, uh, you've got, I think, 12 million or so Catholics there today. The Catholics have continued their presence. Uh, Protestants started evangelizing China in the 1800s. And they evangelized China. Whoops. Not so fast, Robert. They evangelized China from both North America and from Europe, especially England, it started in England, the missionary efforts from the Protestants. That's what we want to talk about today. And I've pulled out a few personalities to discuss that hopefully will motivate you, educate you, and uh, help us uh, be better people and better parents and better everything we need to be. So here they are. First personality, Robert Morrison. Robert Morrison Looks like a friendly enough fella. You got to remember back then when they were first taking pictures and even doing photo, uh, paintings, portraits. The, the person sitting for the picture or the portrait was urged not to smile, to look very serious. And that's why we look at a lot of these pictures and think, my, what a dour person. 
It's not that they were necessarily dour. They were trying to look dour. I've never quite understood why, but the truth of it I do understand. Robert Morrison was born in 1782 in England. He was a, a, a godly kid from the beginning, and he was devoted to God, and he wanted to do mission work from the very beginning. So he prayed to God. He said, God, Lord, place me in the most difficult area for mission work with the largest obstacles to receiving Christ. That's where you need me most, so that's where I'd most like to go. But Robert was very close to his mother, and he made a decision he would not leave for the mission field until his mother died. His mother died when he was 20 years old. So at the age of 20, Robert started getting himself ready and over the next five years prepared and left for the mission field in 1807. He stayed in China as a missionary for 27 years. It's an interesting deal. There aren't Protestant missionaries over there that we know of. He just, he just up and goes. That's his primary purpose in going. He's learning the language and he's headed to China the most difficult place with the largest obstacles. On his way over there, he, of course, goes by ship. The airline routes were really not working. And you think we had delays now at the airport. You should have seen them back then. That's going to be another 120 years. Um, So he's on a ship, and the ship captain finds out why Robert Morrison is going. And he says, hey, Morrison, Do you really expect to make an impression on the idolatrous Chinese? Morrison's response, no. But I expect God will. It's a good attitude. Good answer, isn't it? Okay, so he goes. And Morrison arrives to a near impossible mission. He... It's a great song. I tried to get the little lighter thing to go across like this with the match burning. I couldn't pull that off. Thank Dale Hearn for that inspiration on that slide. But uh, he arrives to a near impossible mission. The reason why China does not like outsiders. They're not real open to it. At the time, China is... uh, Trade has been opened between China and England. Do you know what happens every afternoon in England? Tea time. Do you know where the tea was coming from? China. Ah, you already know your history. Well, what hap- how do you get tea from China? You buy it. Chinese wanted silver in payment. So you got all this silver going over to China for tea. So the way it hopefully works out is the Chinese take the silver and they buy something back from you. That's called trade balance. If the Chinese don't buy anything from you, they just take your silver and sell you the tea that they grow each year. That's called trade deficit, if you're looking at it from the British side. Trade surplus from the Chinese side. The British do not like trade deficit. All of their silver seems to be going to China for this stuff they keep drinking. So they got to find something the Chinese want. So they did. They found opium. 
opium out of India. And the East India Trading Company made a bunch of opium addicts up in China. Now, the Chinese were not fond of opium, especially the Chinese government. The emperor declares that opium is destroying his people. Britain knows opium's not a really cool thing because opium trade in Britain is illegal. But it's fine to sell in China. And so the Chinese ultimately declare opium, the emperor declares it illegal, writes a letter to the monarch in England and says, hey, would you please honor your own laws where you don't allow opium to be traded and sold in your country and our country because it's also illegal here and quit importing opium and trading it here. The response of the British government was to send the British military and the opium wars broke out. And the British fought for the rights to sell opium, ultimately forced the Chinese to back down. As part of the treaty, got Hong Kong and five ports declared open for British trade. You know, the Chinese were not real fond of the Brits. And this really made it hard to be a missionary. Especially when some of the missionaries at this point in time are actively involved in the opium trade. Um, but not Morrison. Morrison got there and he struggled and he struggled and he struggled. And he spent 27 years on the mission field. Let me tell you the fruits of his labor. This is the result of 27 years of mission activity by Morrison. Number one, 10 conversions over 27 years. That's about one every two and a half years. That's not like a real high efficiency rate, is it? It's what you get for praying, God, send me to the most difficult area. God might say, okay. But he did translate the Bible into Chinese. And it's a neat story how he did it. Um, ultimately, his Chinese got so good that the East India Trading Company, you know, the opium uh, uh, dope dealers, they actually hired him, him being Morrison, they actually hired him to be a translator because his Chinese got to be so good. So on their nickel, he translates the Bible and actually continues to do his evangelism work. The East India Trading Company had a policy that you were not allowed to evangelize. No religious teaching. When the East India Trading Company found out what Morrison was doing on their dollar, they ordered him uh, fired. But the immediate supervisors of Morrison did not follow through. They kept him on because they needed him. So over this 27-year period, he manages to translate the Bible into Chinese. A very good translation, I might add. During a furlough time, Morrison goes back to England. And he wakes up England to the need for Chinese missions. He goes everywhere he can and he urges the, the people of England to rise up and to go do the mission field. Especially Chinese women who could not learn as much from a man 
They needed women teachers because of the culture. So Morrison goes throughout England and says, would you women please come to China? Preferably unmarried women because it's hard to do with your husbands. But he takes is responsible, Morrison's responsible for a slew of unmarried women going to China to do mission work. Um, I'll also tell you that one of the ten conversions he had was a fellow named Liang Afa. Liang Afa was actually a printer, a Buddhist and a printer, who was printing the Bible that Morrison was translating. And in the process of printing it, he'd read it. And he became converted. He became persuaded because the word of God doesn't return void. It has an effect. And, and while Morrison could only count ten conversions, one of those ten bore great fruit. You know, you don't, you don't have to affect a hundred thousand people to be big for the Lord. You affect one. And that one may be the one who affects you know, so it's an interesting story. And that's the story of Morrison. Let me tell you a second fella. Let's talk about J. Hudson Taylor. J. Hudson Taylor, while his mom, before his mom was expecting him, his mom prayed, God, give me a son. If you give me a son like Samuel's mother, I'll dedicate my son to you. And that's what happened. His mother dedicated him before he was ever born. He was born in, Taylor was born in 1832. And he spent his life knowing that God had made him for something important because his mother told him that he belonged to God. Taylor decided to be a missionary and he studied a little bit of medicine, not enough to become a doctor, but a little bit. And then in 1821, he left for China. Uh, or no, he left for China when he was 21. So that would have been about 1853, excuse me. Taylor goes to China and when he's in China, he finds that they're not very receptive to him. They've had two opium wars at this point in time. The Chinese just really aren't into this English missionary thing. So do you know what he does? Well, drastic situations calls for drastic measures and solutions. So he grows his hair out. He dyes it black. He puts it in a pigtail. And he starts wearing Chinese clothes. He says, if you looked close, you could tell he wasn't Chinese. But you had to look pretty close. The sun had baked his skin enough. He's got his hair black. By the way, they didn't have good hair dye back then. He said, it's really a beast of a thing to do. His scalp burned and itched all the time. But he kept his hair dyed. Now, periodically, Taylor would go back to England and they thought he was a Fruit Loop. Because here's this, you know, that's just not cricket. You're, you're, in, you're in Victorian England at the time. And, and here's this guy who's gone off the deep end. He went to China. He's now wearing Chinese garb. And he's uh, got his hair done up. And, and it was not a cool thing in England. Um, but while he was in England, something happened to his heart and his mind. Taylor goes to church and he sees a few hundred smug Christians, as he says, in church, thinking that God rotates around them and that they are the center of Christianity. And Taylor's very upset because Taylor knows there are 400 million Chinese that don't even have the benefit of knowing about God. And God is just as concerned about each one of the Chinese souls as he is each one of the British souls. 
And so, Taylor makes a decision. Taylor organizes uh, um, a mission effort and goes around the country and tries to galvanize and get people to come to the mission field. He organizes what's called the China Inland Mission. The few mission efforts at that time in China were all in those coastal towns, the border towns, where the British Army was there to protect you and, and the treaties were in place. Well, that's not what Taylor decides to do. J. Hudson Taylor says, I'm going inland and I'm going to take a bunch of people with me and we're going to convert the masses. And he had a vision for how to convert the whole country. And that was the vision that pushed him. He was an organizational genius. And he set up an organization that's so good that it still exists today. About 40 years ago, they changed their name to the Overseas Missionary Fellowship because they're not just in China. They have over 30,000 missionaries around the world now. That's pretty incredible. The Overseas Missionary Fellowship today has over 30,000 missionaries throughout the world, and they have a wonderful way of doing it. And, and these are missionaries that really sort of are self-supporting. It's an incredible missionary effort, but it started with this fella. He was a wonderful guy. He not only had a gift for organization, but he was a very humble man as well. One time when he was in Australia speaking at a church, uh, uh, he was introduced and the Australian guy introducing him says, here to speak is our illustrious guest, Hudson Taylor. Hudson stands up and says, dear friends, first words out of his mouth. I'm the little servant of an illustrious master. I'm, I'm not anything big. The God I serve is huge. You know, anything you see with me that says, wow, look, he's accomplished or he's big or he's done something really cool. Write it off. As being mine, give credit to God. God's who's done it. I just stayed out of the way as much as I could. That's his attitude. It was a wonderful, godly attitude. Let me tell you another story about him. He fell in love with this woman on the mission field named Maria Dyer. Now, Maria, her parents had been missionaries in China. And her parents had died when she was a young girl, uh, she and her sister. So her uncle basically raised her. What happened is Maria's parents die in China. Maria returns to England she lives under her uncle and grows up and then as a late teenager decides with her sister to go back to China and continue their parents' mission effort. And so with her parents dead, she goes back to China. She goes there and she works under a school that had been started by a missionary that Morrison had sent over from one of his little jaunts back to England. Okay. So here she is, she's at this school and Hudson Taylor gets an eye for her. The problem is the woman running the school is still a properly British woman. And she doesn't think that this guy, I don't know if she used the word nut job or not, because that's not, doesn't really sound like the word she'd have used. But this guy who's got this Chinese look-alike ponytail thing going, dyeing his hair and wearing Eastern garb, is got... Goo-goo eyes going with uh, this woman missionary working at the school. And so Hudson Taylor writes a little letter saying, I'd be interested in courting you and marrying you if you're interested, please. Maria Dyer has the schoolmasteress dictate the response that says, no, keep away from me, you creep. 
Taylor gets it and says, you know, I saw that look in her eyes. She doesn't think I'm a creep. This must be coming from that harsh woman from England. So I'll meet her secretly and we'll do better than this. So starts meeting with Maria and things seem to be headed the right direction. At which point Maria's schoolmistress is so frustrated. She says, look, if this guy's really interested in you, then let him go back to England, become properly British, get a proper education. You know, he's a, he's a dropout. He didn't even finish med school. Okay, let him go back and get a proper education, and then maybe he'll be good enough, and we'll let him see you, and we'll see what happens then. Um, meanwhile, Hudson's trumping the schoolmistress. He's writing, Hudson's writing letters to the uncle back in England saying, you know, really, I'm interested in your niece and I'm, this is going nowhere because this lady's in the middle, blah, 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 blah. And, and uh, uh, then the question is asked of Maria, well, wouldn't you like him to go get a proper degree and be properly British first? Here's her response. She says, I would wait for him if he went home in order to increase his usefulness. But is he to leave his mission work in order to gain a name for the sake of marrying me? If he loves me more than Jesus, he's not worthy of me. If he were to leave the Lord's work for world's honor, I would have nothing to do with him. Wow. No wonder he was smitten. She was as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. So they got married and had a wonderful marriage with some wonderful children and lived wonderfully on the mission field. After the marriage, ultimately, Taylor did go back to England. And he actually did finish getting a degree in midwifery because there was a hospital position, a mission hospital he could run in India. I mean in China. So he went back for good purposes of usefulness, not just to get a name so that he could marry Maria. When he was back, he had a chance to go all over England and try and bring people into the mission effort. Became very good friends with someone we spent some time with in this class, a fellow by the name of Charles Spurgeon. In fact, Spurgeon is the one who said, China, China, China is now ringing in our ears in that special, peculiar, musical, forceful, unique way in which Mr. Taylor utters it. And uh, Spurgeon became a big sponsor of Taylor's and his mission effort. Um, now, Taylor goes back to China. China has a boxer rebellion. In 1900, the boxers are very, um, uh, I don't know what the correct political science word is, but these are in northern China. They were northern Chinese natives who really detested all outside influence in China. They were ultra-nationalist, I guess would be the appropriate phrase. So the rebellion was one trying to kick England and any foreign influence out, including that of missionaries. The government at the time in China, the Chinese government, was not powerful enough to stop the Boxer Rebellion. It took the British Army to do it. The British Army came in, stopped the Boxer Rebellion, and required the Chinese government, even though the government was against the rebellion, required the Chinese government to pay all the reparations for any British property or any damage done to British citizens. It was a huge burden on the Chinese government. They didn't have the money to do it. 
It included reimbursing any of the missionaries for any of the damage or property confiscated or, or things lost in the Boxer Rebellion. So, Taylor, Hudson Taylor, would you like to make your claim? The Chinese government's required to reimburse you for all the damage done to your missions. Taylor's response, absolutely not. If someone slaps me on the left cheek, I'll turn to him the right. If someone asks me for my cloak, I'll give them everything I've got. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not seeking anything from the Chinese people but an obedient heart. And it made such a huge impression not only on the Chinese government and the Chinese people, but it even made an impression on the British uh, ambassador to China because he saw the effect it had. And the British ambassador wrote a check for 200 pounds and uh, uh, put it to good use. The fruits of uh, his tree, of Taylor's tree? Well, over 800 missionaries brought to work by him during his lifetime there. Over 18,000 conversions. Opium awareness. Taylor was writing article after article, missive after missive, everything he could in every evangelical journal, every newspaper, anywhere he could get it printed so that the British people understood what was going on with the British government in the, the, the opium trade because it was wrong. And he was an outspoken critic of it. And uh, uh, something that, that as a Christian makes you really proud to see someone who will stand up against the popular government. And because something is wrong. It's just wrong. He started 125 schools. Pretty good, huh? Next. Lottie Moon. Who's heard of Lottie Moon? Oh, we have a bunch of good Baptists here. Little Lottie Moon. Her name was Charlotte. That's what Lottie comes from. Charlotte. Lottie. Little Lottie. She was born to a wealthy Virginia family in 1840. And I've brought some help here today for Lottie Moon. Our youngest daughter, Sarah, has offered to help me. Sarah, can you come up here for a minute? Sarah is our eight-year-old. Okay? How tall are you? Yeah, about four foot four. She would tower over little Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon was four foot two. About like there. Okay. That's full grown. You're going to get bigger? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Go over there and get bigger. Uh, <laughs> little Lottie Moon, born to a wealthy Virginia family. In fact, she had an uncle who bought Jefferson's Monticello after uh, Jefferson died. Uh, born to a wealthy family, she was really smart. I mean, this is a woman. First of all, she and four of her friends uh, the same year were awarded master's degrees. The first five women in the South to ever get a graduate degree. Lottie was born into a Baptist family, a Southern Baptist family. She mastered Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Spanish, of course English, French, Italian, and Chinese. After the Civil War, her family lost everything. And so they didn't have any possessions. She had to start teaching. She went to Kentucky and she started teaching in Kentucky. And she heard some, some missionary talk and decided that's what she needed to do. 
And so Lottie Moon left and uh, in, from 1873 until she died in 1912. She was a Chinese missionary. She did it the same way Taylor Hudson did it. She wore Chinese clothes and fit into the Chinese lifestyle. And if there was a Chinese cultural issue, as long as it didn't violate Christ's commandments and the, the teachings of God, she followed it. In other words, instead of taking China and trying to fit it into the cookie cutter of what a Western Christian was, she tried to figure out how a Western, no, how a Christian would be within the framework of the Eastern culture. And she was very successful in doing it. She had a fellow named Crawford Toy that had been her professor that she fell in love with. And Crawford Toy, in fact, was a Southern Baptist missionary for a while until uh, uh, he was cited for heretical views on the inspiration of Scripture. So they uh, took him out of the mission field, and um, he subsequently became professor of Hebrew at uh, Harvard. Smart fellow, too. So Crawford Toy was a love interest of Lottie Moon's, and Lottie was asked later in life, why didn't you get married? Have you ever been in love? And Lottie's response was, God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, God with my love life, there could be no question about the result. So she stayed single all of her life. Her approach to missions was an interesting approach. Lottie, much like Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission, went to a town called Ping Tu. There were no Christians in Ping Tu. This four foot two Virginia Southern Belle went to Ping Tu, China, knowing absolutely no one there. She found a little place to stay. She would invite people into her home. She would go to the local water hole to draw water. She would go to the, the place where they grind the grain and the rice. She would basically fit into the little town and its schedule and its cultural events. And any time she got the chance, she would tell people about Jesus. In the late 1880s, she had a chance to write home. And she wrote a letter home. And she asked the women to get together within the Southern Baptist Church. The Women's Mission Union had not formed yet. But it did as a result of this. She said, would you Southern Baptist women get together? And why don't you take up a Christmas offering? And send it over for mission work. Not to Lottie, but just for mission work. Set it aside. Let it be used for mission work. That'd be a good thing to do for Christmas. And so the first Lottie Moon Christmas offering for foreign missions was taken in 1888. Collected $3,315. The goal had been 2000 thinking that would send two missionaries, 1000 apiece. But the response was so great, three missionaries went. If you were here at church this morning, David Fleming said next week and the week after, let's bring blankets for the homeless that are new. Don't bring your old holy one that needed to be replaced anyway. Get new blankets. And the folks, the, the church under the bridge that we're missioning with here for the Christmas season and, and really the cold, uh, cold uh, winter for the homeless people is going to pass out these blankets along with a gospel message. And those folks said to David, you know, do you think you can get 100 blankets donated? 
And as David said that, I thought, our class alone will donate 500. You know, I'll have people in here bringing, going to Sam's and buying them in bulk. And David immediately says, and I told the fella, you don't know Champion Forest. We don't do 100 of anything. What would you do with 2,000? And he said, the guy's eyes got big and he swallowed hard and he said, put him to very good use. It's the same principle. It's the same idea. And that's what Lottie said. And the, the neat thing is, it's just as they hoped for 2000 they got $3,315. Did you know today, the largest offering within Christianity, period, global Christianity, each year, the largest single gift is the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for foreign missions. If we look at it today, Last year, over $150 million were given. The total so far, going back to 1888, is almost $2.8 billion. She's four foot two. What a firepower. Because she was by herself doing her mission work, occasionally someone would come see her and check on her, and a nurse went to see her in 1912 and found out Lottie was emaciated. She was very sick. She was down to 50 pounds. And this nurse recognized that Lottie could not live much longer in that shape, got her on a ship to bring her back to America to try and get her well. The ship had left China, gone to Japan, and it was in the Bay of Japan where Lottie died on the ship in 1912. Next, Watchman Nee. How many of you have read any Watchman Nee? A lot. One of my favorite reads. I love to read Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was born in 1903 in China to Congregationalist parents who, and grandparents who, as a result of these mission works, had, uh, uh, were Christians. And so Watchman Nee is born in 1903. He's a really smart guy. He's top of his class. Absolutely. I mean, like valedictorian all the way through. Always nobody close, no close second. He's absolutely brilliant. Becomes a Christian at age 17. Didn't have much to do with Christianity, even though his parents were Christians before that. But at 17, he says, this is it. This is for me. And he becomes a Christian. He's an interesting guy. He's basically self-taught. He doesn't go to seminary. He doesn't go to any gospel schools. But he reads voraciously. Watchman Nee says, for every dollar I make, this was his commitment, I'm going to spend one-third of it on my living expenses. One-third of it, I'm going to give to God. And with one-third of it, I'm going to buy books. I like that guy. I like books. I mean, I'm into living expenses in God, too. But I really like that book thing. And uh, so he does this. And he reads these books. And as a result, you've got this Eastern mindset. Well, now, a lot of the books he reads are not Eastern books. He reads uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Loves it. He's into a, a lot of the books that you and I would have read, too, if we read a lot of Christian works in the 1800s. Um, so he reads all these books, but he winds up with such a fresh approach to Scripture that it's really fun for me to read. I don't know if you've reached a point in your life where you read something on Scripture and you think, yeah, 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 I remember that. Yeah, oh, yeah, I've read that, too. Because sometimes everything seems to be the same. Have you ever found that to be true? Um, I've gotten some notes from people who have enjoyed this class because they say there's stuff that we haven't heard 
but we've been hearing the same things in class for a long time, and, and this has been fresh and different. And there's something fun about fresh and different. You have to be careful. Sometimes fresh and different can be outrageous and wrong. You know, Don't read Watchman Nee for all your correct theology necessarily all the time. All right, But he's got some fascinating things. I remember, and I, I remember this passage that he taught on, and I don't remember which book I got it out of, so I did not cite the book. But he was talking about Matthew twenty-two twenty-eight. This is where the Sadducees, who did not believe in a resurrection, were quizzing Jesus, trying to trap him. And they ask about a man whose wife dies, and then he, he's remarried and remarried and remarried and remarried because they're all dying. And they say, now, then at the resurrection, if there is one, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? And Jesus' response is, uh, you are in error. I think it's the New International Version that says, you no new american standard version that says you are quite wrong and I, I like that you are quite wrong you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of god now knee seizes on that you do not know the scriptures or the power of god and he says there are two types of knowledge jesus talks about there's knowledge of scripture and there's knowledge of the power of god he says christians need both don't think simply knowing Scripture does it for you. And then he cites a couple of examples. He said, remember when the wise men were coming to find Jesus and they'd been following the star. And King Herod hears about it. And Herod calls in the chief priests and the, the, the teachers of the law and says, where does Scripture say the Messiah is going to be born? The response of the chief priests and the teachers of the law was not, give us five days, we'll go pull some scrolls and find it. Hang on, let me Google let me use my BlackBerry and see if I can get it off the Internet. No, the response was immediate. Micah 5.2, but for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, from you will come forth. Okay? And they quote it to him. Watchman Nee says, they knew the scriptures. He says, but after they quote to him where the Messiah is going to be born, they went home. Can you imagine knowing where this Messiah is going to be born, knowing supposedly it's happening right now, and you go home. He says they knew the Scriptures, but they did not know the power of God, what God was doing, what God was about. We need to pray and try to understand not just what God has said, but how God works and what He's doing. Really cool. He talked about how he had his biggest problem following God because it was like uh, 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 trying to, to follow God was like trying to learn to ride a bicycle. And he says, I was real smart as a kid, but I had a lot of trouble riding a bicycle. And the reason why is I'd get on that bicycle and I'd so not want to fall down. And what I'd do is I'd just stare at that wheel and try and keep that wheel from going sideways. And he said, all I'd do is fall until someone said to me, don't stare at the wheel. Stare where you're going. He said, that's the biggest problem of Christians, or a big problem of Christians, is they're so busy gazing at their navel instead of the Messiah that they're going to, that they can't keep their balance straight. He says, you need to keep your eye on the Master and walk to Him and walk for Him and walk like Him. And don't spend all your time gazing at your navel and all of your problems. He'll take care of your problems. It's wonderful stuff. It's really fresh and different. There are over 60 of his works in English. Makes a wonderful Christmas present. Um, one of his great books I'd recommend you. I've got two books for you to read of his if you're into it or would like to. The Normal Christian Life. 
Over 250,000 copies sold. It's his, uh, it's Nee's approach to Romans. And it's phenomenal because all of these things in Romans that we think, oh, that's just so outrageous. Oh, I wish I could be there. Or, oh, I wish I could do that. Or, oh, I wish. I... He says, no, 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 no. Paul's not writing Romans as the ideal. He's writing it as the normal. This is where we all should be. If you're not there, then there's something abnormal. Get there. And it's a wonderful little book. His uh, commentary, not commentary, his lessons on Ephesians are sit, walk, stand. And he says, if you read Ephesians, there are these posture words. It talks about how we should sit. We, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Then Paul talks about how we walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand, or we walk in righteousness. And then finally at the end, he talks about how we stand against the evil one. And Watchman Nee says, Paul chose those posture words for a reason and put them in that order for a reason, and we should do it. We've got to first understand that we truly sit with Christ in the heavenlies. If we don't understand we sit with Christ in the heavenlies, we'll never understand how we can walk in victory in this world, in righteousness. Because the reason we can walk in righteous victory in this world is because we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We have already made it. The Christian is in God's care and in God's hand and infused with God's spirit. The Christian can be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's a fate accompli. That is finished. And as a result, we can walk righteously. And when we understand that and we walk righteously, then we're able to stand up against Satan and all of his schemes. It's a wonderful book. Watchman Nee had a lot of health problems. He had tuberculosis. He had heart ailments. He had gastrointestinal problems. Uh, he had a lot of political problems. He was ordered to leave the country with the communist takeover. He was told, you're not allowed to preach here. And uh, a lot of people left. Uh, Watchman Nee did not. Watchman Nee stayed and continued to preach and, in fact, was arrested and sentenced to 15 years hard labor in prison. Allowed no visitors except his wife. The 15 years is not like American 15 years where you get out after 10 for good behavior or parole. The 15 over there was like 15, but you're never getting out. 20 years later, Watchman Nee's wife dies. The only visitor he was allowed. Six months after she dies, he died in prison. And his belongings, which was his clothes and a sheet of paper under his pillow were given to his niece. That sheet of paper, which he wrote shortly before he died, said the following, Christ is the Son of God who died for the redemption of sinners and resurrected after three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I died because of my belief in Christ. Watch my knee. Boy, I've got a good life. Points for home. Find God's role for you. Find it. Find God's role for you. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear about Rebecca. She goes to China for two weeks. This church right now has got mission efforts. It's got riling over missions. Chances to go for one week, two weeks. Think about it. We have the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Think about it. You may be nearing retirement. Good time to have, start a new career. Find your mission field. Doesn't have to be foreign. There are lots of folks here who need help. But it can be foreign. What are we teaching our children? Do we teach them to consider that on career day? Maybe God's raising them up. I'm not happy that mine go to California and England for college. 
I'm not sure how I'd handle him going to Zimbabwe for God. But I hope with grace and dignity, and boy, it'd be a gas to help move them in. Um, do we teach it to our children? I had some friends, I had a great, great, great um, college group of, of friends in school. Um, before I went to Lipscomb, I went to Texas Tech. And uh, Texas Tech undergrad, I had some really super friends who decided that they were having such wonderful efforts at missionizing at Texas Tech, dorm room Bible studies and everything. You know what they did? 20 of them transferred in mass to Bellingham, Washington, and the University of Washington, because there wasn't a student ministry up there. And they thought, as long as we're paying to go to college, why don't we go to a college together as a Christian college youth group or whatever and evangelize that college? That church had a couple of thousand people in it last I checked on it because they had such an incredible effect at that school. They just all went together. What would happen if a group of 10 of us or 15 of us said, hey, here's a town or a city that doesn't have a good gospel-centered church in it at all. Let's take our careers and all transfer there. We'll help each other out. We'll see how we do. And let's get a church started. There are lots of possibilities. Start praying about it. Start thinking about it. Find God's role for you. Pray for yourself. Pray for your spouse, your family. Pray for your children to find role in God's mission. It's God sending. One of Nee's favorite verses, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And we should be doing that asking, whether it's us or not. Finally, let's remember, God is not God of America. Do you see uh, Evan Almighty when they're doing the... Um, the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, and God's standing there next to Evan, and God says the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under me. It's okay for us to seek our nation to be under God, but we must never confuse that with the idea that, that God is, that, that, that our nation is the center and God's around us. God's the Lord of all, all nations. God wants everyone to come to repentance, not just Americans. And we need to realize that and not get so caught up into thinking that God is a Western creation and a Western God. You with me? Pray with me, please. God, thank you so much for this morning and thank you for the mission efforts of these stories and the inspiration of them. My prayer is that you will bless the folks in here and give us understanding of where we should be within your plan. Uh, praying, giving, or going. It's an honor to be your children and to work together toward this end. And we thank you for that. Lord, bless our class the next few weeks. Make these wonderful messages of hope and understanding and assurance as we study Lewis and Schaefer and, and others. In Jesus' name, amen.